Hi, this is Steve Meyer, and I want to thank you for being a regular listener of the ID the Future podcast. We appreciate your interest in intelligent design and the work we're doing to develop the case for the theory of intelligent design. And I'd like to encourage you, if you find these broadcasts edifying, intellectually or otherwise, to become a regular financial supporter of the work of the Center for Science and Culture. You may know that we depend entirely on private donations. We don't get any federal money. We don't get government money for our scientific research program. And if you find the work that we're doing interesting, we'd be awfully grateful if you'd consider becoming a partner in that work by providing whatever you're able to ensure that that work goes forward. To give, go to discovery.org slash ID slash donate. That's discovery.org slash ID slash donate. Thank you so much. Welcome to ID the Future, the podcast about evolution and intelligent design. I'm your host, Todd Butterfield. Coherence is a prerequisite for life, not the outcome of life, as Darwin supposed. Thus says Steve Lofman, who, on our last episode of ID the Future, discussed seven insights he developed from Dr. Howard Glicksman's 81-part series on evolution news called The Designed Body. Mr. Lofman, a consultant in the growing field of enterprise architecture, dealing with the design of very large, very complex composite information systems that are orchestrated to perform specified tasks in demanding environments. Steve Lofman's previous article was about irreducible complexity. I encourage the listener to read the article or listen to the podcast. This time we're taking a deeper look into the flaws of gradualism from your article at evolutionnews.org titled, The Design Body Continued, Coherence Wins, Gradualism Fails. Thank you for staying on for another episode, Mr. Lofman. Happy to be here. So you and I are having this conversation because... We exist. Our existence, you say, is constantly fighting to survive. Describing how we exist, a medical doctor might describe all of this in medical terms, but you tend to also look at these things at the sheer engineering feat that is the human body. You frequently refer to coherence. So what is coherence in relation to engineering and function? That's a great question, and I probably don't know the complete answer. It's a property that we see in all design systems in which the function of the whole is not possible from any piece part by itself. So every piece is necessary to achieve the function of the whole, but none by itself is sufficient. So this is very engineering kind of speak, but we see that in the human body which has these interlocking chemical and engineering solutions. I think of them like chainmail armor, where all the links are interconnected in complicated ways to increase the strength of the armor, yet provide, of course, the flexibility. Mm-hmm. So in the human body, this is dozens of diverse interdependent control systems. There's hundreds of functional subsystems. There's tens of thousands of specialized parts. An adult human body has approximately 37 trillion individual cells. Each one of those cells has coherence internally. It's composed of thousands of interdependent parts. Each part is precisely arranged and coordinates its actions with other parts. So like we talked last time, 
there are 200 specialized cell types in the human body. And as far as I know, there have been at least 12,000 specialized proteins within those cells to make all this work. That's a lot of stuff. It certainly is. And what's funny, when you're describing this, I picture all of these 12,000 or billions or millions of parts leaping together all at the same time to create us so that they can function because they need each other to do so. That's the only way I can see it working. You said that mankind has not made and probably cannot make coherent systems of the scope and scale that is achieved in our own bodies. Is that correct? Well, certainly nothing that any human organization has ever done has come even close. I mean, we're off by hundreds of orders of magnitude to what's going on in a human body. I mean, it's just hard. We have nothing to compare it to. So, and we don't have the slightest idea of most of what's going on in a human body. So this coherent system you talk about has to keep changing. Why does it have to change? And what makes it so unfathomable that it can do so, barring an intelligence? So coherence is a really intriguing property of a system. It's hard to achieve coherence because all the parts have to be in the right places doing the right things. And once you achieve coherence, coherence makes substantive changes much more difficult because when I make a change in one component, I usually have to make corresponding changes in other components. So the more interdependencies there are, the harder it is to change things. Now, there is a lot of flexibility. Obviously, we see this in biology all over the place, but there's a lot of flexibility within these constraints. So hair color, the size and shape of your earlobes or your nose, there are a lot of properties that are incredibly flexible, but the basics are all the same. So your spleen works pretty much the same as everybody else's spleen. Thank goodness. Yes. Well, whatever spleens do, I don't know. But it must be important because I don't think you want to try going without one. The shape of your bones varies a little bit, but not by very much from person to person. So there, you're talking about general change, but not specific, like dramatic change. Let's change the subject, speaking of change, to another point in your article. You talked about phylogenesis and ontogenesis. What are they, and do they pose any problems for Darwinian gradualism? So coherence is what poses the problem. So the issue here is that coherent interdependent systems like we see in the human body are tough to bootstrap. So for non-technical folks, that's a, a very computing-oriented term, which is my background. Bootstrap is how do you get this stuff launched? If I have to control all 40 of the factors that Howard Glicksman talks about in his series of articles, how do I bootstrap that? How does the blood work before I can build hemoglobin how do the cells stay alive if I can't get oxygen to them because the heart's not ready yet? Mm. So there's this notion of how to generate all these systems and bring them online in a way that allows the body to be alive while it's doing this. In any biological system, the organism has to be alive the whole time. You don't get to build it first and then turn it on. It's running the whole time. So phylogenesis is this notion of 
how does a functioning body plan come into existence? So if I've got to control 40 factors, and it's clear that humans have to do this, how do you control a chemical or physiological factor while my body is waiting for evolution to generate the control system I need to control it, right? So life is continuous. It has to continue or all bets are off. So if my body can't control or if a body plan back in, you know, however many years back, that body couldn't control oxygen, it wouldn't survive long enough to reproduce. So therefore it would cease to exist. So there's this notion of how do you launch a complete body plan gradually? It's a hard problem. I'm thinking you don't. Well, I'm thinking that too. So the other side of this, and it's one that I think we understand better as humans, is ontogenesis, which is how does an individual within the body plan come into existence? And we, we have a lot of experience with this. In fact, humans have a really elegant solution to this problem. At the moment of fertilization, a human body consists of one cell. It's called a zygote. And it will grow over nine months. It will turn into thousands and then millions and then to hundreds of millions of cells. And as it's doing so, those cells will become specialized and they will eventually bootstrap control systems for all 40 of these survival factors, right? It takes about nine months for that to happen. And at the end of that, you've turned a zygote into what I call a tax deduction. <laughs> you and me. Yes, it's a baby at that point. And of course, it continues to grow. So the process continues to occur for another 18 years or so. But the important point here is that as that baby is developing its own internal control systems, it is vulnerable to the forces of nature and it will die unless it gets help. Thankfully, we have mothers doing that. Yes. So We sort of lose sight of how extraordinary this is, Mm -hmm. but the mother and the unborn child coordinating their systems and their activities in such a way that the mother's systems can account for the growing child's inability to control all these factors. So, for instance, the child has no way to get oxygen from the environment because it can't breathe, and it will die within a couple of minutes without oxygen or glucose, or any of these other four effects. So it's an amazing property that the mother at her stage in her life cycle and the growing baby at its point in life are coordinating their processes. They're completely different individuals using perfectly integrated systems Mm. to ensure the survival of that growing child when it's unable to survive on its own. From an engineering perspective, again, this is just nifty. Yeah, we just can't do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I don't know how to build a system that does that. Mm-mm. Especially independently. Yes. How is that going to happen accidentally? How does a random cause make that happen? Well, I think that's the whole point of your article. Speaking of which, gradualism is kind of the reference point that you made. Compare if you would, intelligent design, we've been alluding to, to gradualism 
using, say, how a car works. Could a car occur by gradualism, given, let's say, a million years? It depends on whether it has to be functional in between in <laughs> stages, right? So let's say this is an analogy, right? So I have to have a car that can get me from point A to point B. If my car doesn't do that, I'm going to throw it away. So this simulates the survival question. So it takes maybe several dozen parts to make a drivable car. Uh, let's say three dozen. I, I'm not sure what the number is, but let's say it takes three dozen parts. But I can only add two or three parts at a time because I have to build it gradually. But at every step, I'm only going to keep it if it can get me from point A to point B. So that's the minimum functional requirement. Mm. Based on those rules, I'll never get there. Think about it. If I started with the tire and added the carburetor and a steering wheel, so I've added three parts in one step, it won't drive. It won't go anywhere. Right. So I throw it away. It can't survive. It's useless so, from the beginning. Yeah. So now let's start with a steering wheel and the exhaust pipe. Oh, I still can't drive it. I've got to throw it away. So the point here is that I will never get to minimum functionality, even if they're the right parts and I put them in the right places, unless I add more parts at once. So this is the, the bootstrapping problem. Oh, I, I need to right. add a lot of parts in order to generate what I need to get to minimum functionality. So I may need three dozen parts to get there, but if I can only add two or three or even four or five at a time, I will never get there. Well, even to me, having two or three come together in the right place, gradually by chance, still seems impossible. So, <laughs> Well, and that's exactly the point. If I know what the parts are, they're the right parts, and I put them in the right places, mm. I still can't get there. Mm. So it's still impossible. Mm. Let's say I bolt random stuff together, so I bolt the carburetor on the side of the tire. It's astoundingly unlikely that I'll ever get a useful function of any kind, much less a complete set of functionality to make the whole. Right? So random undirected changes only make the impossible less possible. I'm going to have to have you say that again. Make the impossible <laughs> make the impossible even more impossible. Is that what you're saying? That's right. <laughs> it, that which is impossible gets even less possible. It's like impossible squared. I don't know how to describe that. It just can't happen. Just what you were describing just always picture in my mind a house of cards people who who stand firmly or think they stand firmly on a gradualistic or darwinistic point of view for origins etc there's nothing there and makes as you said the impossible even more impossible as you try to imagine it happening Let's wrap this up with one of your final comments in your second article you asked the gradualists to produce something in the fossil record and then explain its occurrence in a single generation. We've already kind of been leading up to this by our other conversations. What exactly is your challenge to gradualists and why those two things? So I think there are two challenges which comprise the burden of proof for anyone who's espousing any gradual causal mechanism, much less random. The first is you have to have 
what's called an adaptive continuum. You have to have a viable organism at each and every discrete step from a single-celled critter to a complex body plan like a human being. Because each every, stage has to survive. Every one of those organisms, no matter how it's changed, no matter what it looks like, has to be viable. It has to survive. And what Dr. Glucksman has shown us is that's hard. Mm-hmm. It's not automatic. Things just don't survive because survival's built into the universe. Death is built into the universe. Life is a discontinuity in the universe. So I need an adaptive continuum. The second thing I need is any causal mechanism that's proposed has to be able to produce all the changes for every discrete step within one generation. Why is that? I have to go from a viable organism to another viable organism. Oh, I see. So I have to jump from viability to viability. And coherence tells us that once I have a coherent system, changing it is very hard. So I may have to change a lot of things in that single step. And I think you're saying that we should be able to, were this even remotely possible, see that in the fossil record somewhere. Right. So what coherence tells us is that we should see sort of large jumps in organisms because they have to maintain viability. And that's exactly what we see. We see things pop into existence in the fossil record, and then they don't change very much right. for a long, long time. I mean, tens or hundreds of millions of years. Mm -hmm. They just don't change. You know, they change a little bit in size. Like we talked about, there are some parameters that they can change within, but the basics don't seem to change. So our theory predicts that, and the fossil record demonstrates it. So I'd say the data is pretty sound here. I agree, and I really am so thankful that you endeavored to break apart the 81-part series of Dr. Glicksman and put it into a form and function that I can digest easily, and hopefully a lot of others. Steve Loffman, you indeed make me thankful that the architect of life designed you and me so we could have this conversation and that we could share your work and Dr. Glicksman's work with others. I wish you the very best in your next endeavors. I bet they're all going to be exciting. It's good to be here. There's more coming. Good. We're doing some more interesting work. There'll be more to, to say in the future. I'm sure there will. So let me know. And until next time, this has been Todd Butterfield for ID the Future. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.